Uh, let me tell you about a, a typical Monday morning for me, and you can tell me after if you can resonate with this, okay? A typical Monday. I get to my computer, I open up my email in the morning, and I find waiting for me in my inbox, you know, a couple of work-related emails. Uh, I find, you know, a few newsletters from different journalists, uh, some online bills that are ready to view uh, for me. I have some correspondence from my kids' soccer coaches telling me about practices and games and snack schedule. Uh, and then I have the handful of advertisements that somehow I haven't unsubscribed from yet, but they're there, and I find myself opening them up, so I go to look at them. And, you know, the first one is from Costco. And in the same message from Costco, I see attractive outdoor patio sets that I can enjoy, you know, uh, with, it makes a summer afternoon look so comfortable that I could, I, I could have that with my friends. And I see, same email, sparkling TVs, just perfect for my Saturday, for, for college game day, uh, if I wanted to. And then, you know, you keep scrolling, you see the really goofy, super plush bathrobes, and I think, who buys that? Although, that would make a nice, guilty pleasure. Um, but then I think, no, 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 not today. You know, I was hoping to find coupons for Goldfish and Cheez-Its, but... No luck there, so I keep moving. Click on. Um, the next email is from REI. So I open up the REI one because, well, I have to. Um, and I look and I see they have new tents and they have new fleeces for my fall camping trip, your fall camping trip. They're there. They're ready for you in the picture. I mean, these people look so comfortable lounging by the fire in this outdoor setting. You know, the fall leaves behind them. It's just gorgeous. Uh, but I, I do exercise self-control. Um, Resist the temptation to follow that email and waste 20 minutes coveting outdoor gear. So I keep moving, at least in that moment, and I move on to the next email from Travel Zoo. Okay, Travel Zoo, they're offering me last-minute deals to beautiful locations all around the world. And I see pictures of people just lounging on these pristine white sand beaches, and you know, the headline says, Fiji awaits, and it's amazing. And you know, delete, 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 click through and, and, and clear them all out. But before I have had a chance, to really enjoy, you know, my cup of coffee, I have been hit rapid fire by digital marketers. And on that, you know, given Monday morning, okay, with the to-do list and the tasks and my calendar, you know, items rushing at me quickly, they interject, they get in there, and they try to sell me the same thing. They're all trying to sell me rest. Rest. For a little bit of money... I can rest with my friends in my new backyard, you know, by my outdoor fireplace. For a little bit of money, I can rest on my couch enjoying the game, you know, on a 120-inch television or whatever it is. Or I can rest out in nature in my new Patagonia. Or I can rest on a beach. They're selling rest because they know that our hearts long for it. Now, last week in our studies in Genesis, we talked about work, and we discovered in these first few pages of the Bible that God is a God who works, and that God made us for work. Well, we keep reading this week, and we come to what is, it's really kind of part two to last week, because we keep reading, and we discover that at the end of creation, God rests. And the implication is that we, who are made in his image, are also called to rest. So our main point this week, it's just going to be a, a slight emendation, a slight edit from last week. Okay, last week we saw that God made us for work. This week, our main point is that God made us for rest. The reason you and I are drawn to those advertisements, the reason Monday morning often feels so overwhelming, 
The reason we look forward to weekends and vacations is because God made us for rest. If you get that, you get the passage. You understand it. You're there. Okay, so let me uh, show us a quick outline, and then we'll read. This morning, we're going to see that God made us for rest, and we're going to take it in three parts. We're going to see God's design for rest. We're going to consider humanity's need for rest, and then finally, we'll land the plane with Christ's offer for rest. But with that, let me read. Genesis chapter 2, just three verses, verses 1 to 3. We read this. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Father God, we pray now as we dig into these, just this short passage, that you would speak to us, that we would hear what you have said through your word. For this in Christ's name, amen. Okay, ready to dive in? We begin with God's design for rest. Okay, we find three short verses, and we're told a few simple truths a couple of times. Okay, God finished the heavens and the earth in six days. God finished the work that he had done in creation, so God rested on the seventh day. Now, you might remember Genesis 1.1, it opens. The Bible opens. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And here, God has finished the heavens and the earth. Okay, he finished the work of creation. It's, it's a nice, tight bookend, you know, from a literary perspective. But furthermore, as we saw last week, the Bible calls this activity of creation, he calls it work. Well then, on the seventh day, having finished his work, God rests. So we learn that God is a God who works, and God is a God who rests. And again, the, infer- the inference is that those, as those who are made in his image, we are made for work, and we were made for rest. That's what we're made for. We see in these chapters, built into the fabric of the created order, is a rhythm of work and rest. Work and rest. We were made for this, for this rhythm. Now, there's no command here in Genesis. If you know your Bibles, you know the Ten Commandments, the command will come later. There's no command, but the command will point back to this moment. See, the the command, it's there in Exodus and it's in Deuteronomy 5. It's there because written into the created order is the rhythm of work and rest. Later, God will tell us, he will command us to do what we were made to do. Now, many of us, we are weary. We need rest. And part of the weariness is a feeling of of oftentimes being out of sync, right? It feels like our whole life, we're like Steve Martin from The Jerk. We're just clapping offbeat. You know, everything else is running like this. We're trying to catch up, and, and we're offbeat. We're out of sync. We feel like we need to get on beat again with the rhythm of the universe, So what do we find here? What can we learn about this design that that can help us keep up or or get back on track, that we can live into it? Well, first, we need to ponder the truth of God resting. It's a crazy thought. The omnipotent God, the almighty God, the all-powerful God who speaks the world into existence, that God rests. Now, the obvious truth is that he didn't need rest 
as if he could be wearied. No. And yet, he rested. Now, these verses, they both tell us this and they show us this when we look at them. So in chapter 1, over and over and over again, we've, we've I've done this every week. We read, you know, and God said, let there be, and there was, and it was good. And for six days, just over and over again, and God said, let there be, and there was, and it was good. We're treated to six days of this rhythmic procession of creation. But then in these three verses, there's none of that. Because God is resting. So on the seventh day, there's no, and God said. There's no, let there be, and there was. Because God was not creating. God was resting. All of the repetition in the first six days, it stops and it gives way to something else. So the musically oriented among us, they might imagine a symphony being written to capture the creation. And and they, they get this work and they thumb through the sheet music, pages of notation, and they see by looking through it, okay, there's seven movements in the symphony. And all throughout the first six movements, there's a flurry of notes and chords and and musical themes that and riffs, you know, they repeat and they build on one another, they develop. New and exciting melodies arrive and they're introduced each movement, each day, but they're additions to a whole, not separate pieces. And, And it keeps going, keeps going, and then you get to the seventh movement and it's just several Measures of rest. It's rest. If you were to witness an orchestra performing this piece of music, maybe in this seventh movement, when they get there, you know, the conductor, the musicians, they're panting, they're out of breath. Maybe even the audience is, is, you know, catching their breath, reveling in what they just experienced. But the composer's not. He has no need to recover. And yet, he wrote it, rest. It's there. Why? I like what Helmut Tielecki writes. He says, on the border between the completed work of creation and the noisy alarms of history, there's a great silence. The resting hush of the creator. Again, it's it's remarkable. He doesn't need rest, and yet he rests. We ask, what's the meaning of all this? Tielecki continues. He says, this is what it is saying. No matter how overwhelming the riches of creation may be, the profusion of birds and beasts and beautiful flowers, the spectacle of rising and setting stars, the wonder of seeds and fruits and unceasing growth, overwhelming as all this may be, a sublime hand grasps us for a moment by the shoulder, turns us around so that all these glories lie behind us and makes us look at the Lord of creation himself. Otherwise, you see, we might overlook him. Love that. This seventh day is set aside for us to stop and look at our creator. To turn from beholding his gifts, the wonderful things he has made, to just beholding him, the giver. Think about it. As you read through chapter one, you know, different things take center stage each day of creation. But what do we find on the seventh day? Not light and dark, or land and sea, not sun or moon, or birds or fish, or creeping things, or even humans. No, go to the seventh day. And what do you find there? You find God. The language, it's stark, it's brief, it has its own repetition, but it holds out before us God. The seventh day is for God. 
And so we keep reading. Verse 3 says, so God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Okay, that, that phrase is huge. Made it holy. That phrase, it's a clue to the purpose of this day. So throughout the first five books of the Bible, uh, when you read, you know, Genesis through Deuteronomy, when God makes something holy, he is setting it aside for worship. So you get to Leviticus, everybody's favorite book. You get to Leviticus, and there's altars and golden censers and candlesticks and plates for bread and, you know, utensils and priests, and they're all made holy in order to be used for worship. They're set aside. They're made holy for the tabernacle later for the temple. God makes these things holy. He sets them aside for worship, for the purpose of worshiping him. And so on the seventh day, God rests and he sets aside this day for the purpose of worshiping him. That's why it's holy. Set aside for worship. But again, verse 3 says, God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Now, this is striking in its own regard that God blesses a day. Okay, so if you read through the book of Genesis, outside of chapters 1 and 2, God only ever blesses people. When you see God blessing something, it's only people in the whole book of Genesis except for chapter 1 and 2. See, here at the beginning, we find God blessing birds and fish, and then he blesses humans, and then the third time, he blesses the seventh day. Now, we can look at the pattern. So, look up, look at your Bibles. Look up the page, chapter 1, verse 22. Okay, to the birds and the fish, we read, And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply. Then, skip down, chapter 1, verse 28. To humans, we read, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Blessing, be fruitful and multiply. Well, when we read here that God blessed the seventh day, the reader should expect, well, be fruitful and multiply to follow. There should be fruitfulness. There should be life. Now, God doesn't say it explicitly because God doesn't speak here. He, he's not creating. But that's the implication. This day is for life. This day is for life to abound. Now, if you feel lost in the weeds, let's put this all together, okay? The design of work and rest, the design of the Sabbath is that we would turn and worship God and find life in him. That's what the day is for. That's why he gave it to us, that we might find life in him. Now, maybe this morning you are here and your life feels out of sync, out of rhythm. You haven't found the, the beat. You haven't found the divine rhythm of work and rest. You're out of step and you're tired. Man, your life of errands and work and family life, and hobbies, and financial goals, and strained relationships, and unmet longings, they keep you going, and they keep you working, and they keep you tired. And maybe, just maybe this morning, you feel God's gentle hand on your shoulder, turning you around, and saying, stop. Stop. Look at me. Take your eyes for a minute off of the world, and look at me, and find life. So the day is for. That's what the Sabbath is for. That's its design. You can find rest and you can find life in him. So in book one of the Lord of the Rings, okay, I know there's some fans out there, Fellowship of the Ring. In that book, there is a exquisite description of Sabbath rest that you can find, okay? Maybe you remember 
start of the book, The Hobbits and Strider, they begin their journey from the Shire to Weathertop, and it's, it's dangerous. The ring rates are there. Frodo gets stabbed. Ah! You know, but eventually, they barely make it to Rivendell, okay? the land of the elves. It's this kingdom. It's Elrond's house, and they get to Rivendell. Now, they know an even worse journey is ahead. Okay, They're going to gain some people, and it's going to be even worse getting all the way to Mount Doom. But for, for that brief moment, they're there at Rivendell. And this is what we read. This is what Tolkien tells us. He says, For a while, the hobbits continued to talk and think of the past journey and of the perils that lay ahead. But such was the virtue of the land of Rivendell that soon all fear and anxiety was lifted from their minds. The future, good or ill, was not forgotten, but it ceased to have power over the present. Health and hope grew strong in them, and they were content with each day as it came, taking pleasure in every meal and in every word and song. Wow. Think about rest like that, where the future ceases to have power over the present. God made us for that kind of rest. All right. We've seen God's design. Let's turn now to humanity's need. Humanity's need for rest. We know we live this side of the fall. We live in what we could call a Genesis 3 world, a world that is profoundly changed by the fall, by the entrance of sin into the world and the curses that came as a result. Now, though we were made for rest, we still have a need of rest because somehow we don't get it in this world. Now, last week we talked about God's design for work. And yet we know that we don't always get to experience work the way it was supposed to be. Though we were made for it, we don't often get to experience work as God's delegates and stewards in the world, imitating him and being used by him to care for the needs of the world. We don't get to experience work like that often. Now, we're going to look at this explicitly in the coming weeks, but this is a direct result of the fall. In a fallen world, the rhythm of work and rest, well, it's hard to come by. Because both work and rest have been distorted. And this further amplifies our need. So Andy Crouch has a book called TechWise Family. And he says that instead of work and rest, we have toil and leisure. And neither is an improvement on the original. Instead of work and rest, toil and leisure. See, we exhaust ourselves in what feels like drudgery throughout the week just to get to the weekend of leisure. But all of it is unsatisfying. We need rest. We need rest. Now, this is true for three reasons. Okay? First, we need rest from our toil. Okay? We need rest from our toil. This side of the fall, we struggle in our work. Our days are full of pain and thorns and thistles. It's the nature of work now. As Psalm 127 says, you know, we rise early, go to bed late, eating the bread of anxious toil. And we know this. We know this by looking at our text from the contrast between ourselves and God. So we read in the passage that God finished his work and rested. But we look at our lives and it feels like there is no end. We're never finished. The work just goes on and on and on. That's the experience of toil. Instead of experiencing the high calling of fulfilling God's purpose as his stewards in this world, we toil and we're tired. We need rest from our toil. Second, we need rest from our frustration, from our frustration. God, again, let's contrast what we see in the passage with ourselves. God saw everything that he had made 
And behold, it was good. It was very good. And so he rests in his completed work. He rests on the seventh day because he finished his work. Well, too often, we get to the end of our day, and we see what we have done, and behold, it's not very good. (laughs) This side of the fall, too often, our work, it's frustrated. Now, this could come from systems and bureaucracy or individuals, maybe what feels like an enemy, or our own weakness and deficiencies. They all can get in the way and frustrate our efforts at good work. And so we feel like the second grader, you know, who's, who's trying to draw a picture, but it doesn't turn out the way that they want it. And so they get all mad and they crumple it up and they want to throw it in the bin. They're so frustrated it didn't turn out the way they wanted. That's us. Instead of imitating God, experiencing the glory of work done, you know, after his likeness, we experience frustration, maybe even shame. We need rest from our toil. We need rest from our frustration. And third, we need rest and we need to be set free from our slavery. The experience of toil and frustration leads many of us, well, to just keep working. (laughs) We just keep going. We never rest. We never Sabbath. We never stop because we think if we could just get one more hour, well, maybe, just maybe we can overcome these sensations. And our inability to stop betrays our misplaced worship. So Bruce Waltke, Old Testament scholar, he says, those who find their security and significance in money or professionalism find community worship on the first day of the week a burden. It's hard. A person who feels inclined to work seven days a week should examine what God he or she worships. As many of us know, The command to remember the Sabbath or observe the Sabbath, okay, it's found in the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments. Now, there are two times when Moses recounts for the people the Ten Commandments. You can find it in Exodus 20 and in Deuteronomy 5. They're going to both come up on the screen. Okay, in Exodus 20, God tells Moses, he says, remember the Sabbath, keep it holy, because on it, God rested from his works of creation. We've talked about it's set aside, it's made holy for worship. We get that. But then in Deuteronomy 5, God tells Moses, remember the Sabbath, keep it holy, because you were slaves in Egypt, and God brought you out. He saved you. Remember the Sabbath, because you you were slaves. Now, while these two things sound different, they're in fact essentially the same, because they're both about worship. Do you remember the Exodus story? The Exodus starts with Moses telling Pharaoh, he says, hey, let us go out to the wilderness for just a few days. Let us go out for a few days that we might worship Yahweh. We're going to take off for a couple days. We'll be back. And Pharaoh says, no. The whole story was a battle over worship. Now, for them to leave for a few days to go worship Yahweh, it was a threat. Because it asked the question, well, do they serve Yahweh or did they serve Pharaoh? Sabbath will always create tension with anything competing to be our master's. When we can't rest, we show we are enslaved. Isn't this what Jesus was saying in Matthew 6? When he said, no one can serve two masters. <laughs> For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. You can't. We need rest from our slavery. So Andy Crouch, again, he Great book, but he writes this. He says, sometimes that slavery is external to us and all too real. 
We are genuinely bound to systems of toil that prevent us from a healthy life and no good option for escape. So, so there, there is real slavery in the world. It's not just a metaphor. There are places in the world human trafficking exists, slavery exists, it's horrible. He says, but there's also an alternate form of slavery to systems of injustice, and that is the slavery of the imagination. Many of us are not as captive to round-the-clock, never-ending demands as we believe we are. Instead, we are our own jailers. We are prisoners of our own insecurity. Will I still have a job if I take two solid weeks of vacation? We're prisoners of our own pride. How can people get along without me? How can the world keep running without me? We're prisoners of our own fantasies. I mean, what, what if I miss an email telling me I won the lottery? We're prisoners of our own cultural capitulation. You know, this is just how the world works now, isn't it? We have to keep going. And he ends this way. He says, for us, the door to a better life is only locked from the inside. Yikes. Now, this is life in a Genesis 3 world. We need rest from toil. We need rest from our frustration. And we need rest from our slavery. Now, I'm guessing we all know the name Vincent van Gogh. You know that name, the artist? Okay, he's a Dutch painter. He, his works have collectively sold for over $700 million, okay? And yet, I think a lot of us know that he was a tragic figure. He cut off his own ear, and he ended his own life with a gunshot wound. Now, despite the astronomical market for Van Gogh's work today, during his lifetime, he only sold one painting. One. And he sold it to a friend for $400, which in today's economy would be just over 2,000 bucks. 700 million, he got 2,000. He never saw the success that he has today, and he was psychologically tormented by it. So historians have, have looked at his output of paintings, how, how he was producing his work, and they realized that he had this increasingly manic relationship with his artwork, and he seemed to rev up at this frenetic pace until it was too much for his broken mind and spirit. And so if you look at the average amount of paintings that the Dutch masters produced, you know, Rembrandt painted about 15 paintings a year. Monet did 42 paintings a year. And Van Gogh averaged 96 paintings a year. But even more wild is that in the last three months of his life, he painted 90 in three months. Okay? Almost one a day, he's turning these things out. Now, one of his pieces, one of his works from June of that year. It's called Vineyards with a View of Alvaire. And, and if you, people have studied this and looked at it, the heavily applied paint in the lower left-hand corner, it bears the distinct impression, the imprint of, you know, cross-hatching from another canvas, leading experts to surmise that, you know, as soon as he finished it, well, he set it aside in a stack with others before it could fully dry. That's how fast he's moving, how fast he's trying to paint and get these things out. So imagine, imagine at the end of his life, Vincent, in those last moments, imagine him mixing his colors and he's stretching his canvases because you had to do that yourself and he's preening his brushes and, and you can imagine the bits of color that are under his fingernails and in his beard and on his clothes and, and they match, you know, the same fury of, of the, the paintings that he's producing. He was not someone with a heart at rest. He was made for rest and despite how hard he worked and worked and worked and worked, he couldn't find it. He couldn't get it. And in the end, it killed him. Now, it's horribly sad. But it illustrates Augustine's famous line that we were made for thee, O Lord. 
and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. Which brings us to our last point. We were designed for rest. We desperately need rest. So let's turn to Christ's offer of rest. Now last week, I, I, I hastily closed my teaching on work saying, I said, you know, the only way we can work the way God made us to work is by resting in Christ's work. I didn't really fill that out very well. You know, I believe it, but I didn't, I didn't get a chance to tease it out. So I'm going to try to work it in a little bit here. But the reason we are marked by unrest is because we don't realize that there's a work under our work that we're striving to complete. Okay, I got this idea from Tim Keller. I think it's really good. We toil and we are frustrated and we are enslaved because there's something in us that longs for significance and longs for meaning and longs for a sense of importance. The theological term for this is justification. Okay? We know something isn't right with us and we try to prove well, that we can be right, that we are right through our work. It's the work under the work. It's the reason we turn work into an idol and end up serving it as a master. So, if you feel guilty because you never feel like you've done enough, or if you feel frustrated and that your work is pointless because it can't quite deliver the life that it promised to give, or if you feel lonely, maybe even underappreciated, because despite all of your effort, you aren't getting the recognition that you hoped would give you a sense of belonging. Or if you felt that you have sought, I mean, if you have felt that, you've sought the work under the work. But that's not a work that you can do. That deficit, that need, that incompleteness, it's created by your and my sin. It can only be satisfied through the work of Christ. Only Jesus can do the work under the work so that you can actually experience the rhythm of work and rest for which you were made. We all have a deep need for rest. We were made for rest. And God set apart the Sabbath, the seventh day, so that we would have the regular rhythm of stopping and coming to him in worship and to receive from him the blessing of life. But in our sin, we're cut off from the garden, cut off from coming to him, cut off from that rest and that life. And we can't get back to him on our own, which is why Christ came to us. God's son took on flesh Christ came to us and he calls out, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Christ came to give us the deep rest we so desperately need. He came and took upon himself our sin and our shame, and he bore them to the cross, dying in our place and paying our debt so that we could enjoy a restored relationship with God. As we studied in our time in Romans, we are justified by his grace as a gift. The work under the work is done for us in Christ. And when we rest in Christ's work, well, then we are set free from having to pursue the work under the work. And we can actually live into God's design of work and rest instead of settling for the counterfeit of toil and leisure. So let's re-examine you know, our toil and our frustration and our slavery. When we rest in Christ, we can have relief from our toil. You know, we strive and strive feeling as if our work is never complete. But then we behold Christ 
We look to him and we hear him cry on the cross, it is finished. And we can be okay. We no longer need to prove anything with this pursuit because we're accepted through his finished work. When we rest in Christ, we can be released from our frustration. You know, we get anxious because our work isn't what we thought it should be. We never feel like enough. Maybe we get angry and bitter with ourselves. But then we behold Christ in his perfection. And we know that was done for us. So that when God looks now at us, he sees Christ's perfection and he loves us as adopted sons and daughters. And we get to hear the affirmation of the Father, you know, said over us, well done, my good and faithful servant. When we rest in Christ, we can be rescued from our slavery. We feel bound to serve our work and we never stop, we never rest. But when we behold Christ, we can be set free from our sin to become servants of God once again and enjoy the rest and the blessing of life that comes from worshiping him. Church, we were made for rest. We see it in God's design, in our need, and we can have it through Christ's offer. Well, okay, teaching aside, there's, there's part of me that feels like, let's just stop there. Let's just worship. It's time. Let's turn to God. But, but I'm, I'm going to be a little awkward um, and, and risk ruining the moment to get us to, to apply this because we have to get practical Okay, for a second, and show, I want to hopefully walk us through how we might receive this gift of rest. So we're going to get back to the worship in a second. Don't lose that, that readiness uh, to turn to Christ in worship. But, but let's talk just briefly a little bit of application, okay, how to rest in Christ. I want to offer us three internal and two external disciplines to help us with this. Now, some of you are like, I thought this was about rest. How can you talk about discipline? You know, we're talking about rest, okay? Well, let me tell you, rest requires more than just stopping, okay? Most people mistakenly believe that all you have to do to stop working is to not work. And then we try that, and we know, oh, we can't do that. It feels like more work to not work. It's easier to keep going, okay? You cannot downshift casually and easily the way you might, you know, slip into bed at the end of the day. It's why, you know, the Puritan and the Jewish uh, Sabbaths, they had all these crazy rules. They were tremendously exacting and, in, and intentional with their rules, requiring all this advanced preparation. But the rules didn't exist to torture the faithful. They were meant to, to communicate the insight that interrupting the ceaseless round of striving requires a lot of will, <laughs> a surprisingly strenuous act of will to actually stop. So we need discipline. So three internal disciplines, then two external disciplines. Okay, internal discipline number one, okay, examine your rhythms. Take time, take the discipline to actually examine what you are doing. What are you currently doing? What are your rhythms right now? And is it working? Are you getting the rest you need? Are you brought to the place of resting in Christ? And then, as you examine these rhythms, consider new ones. Consider actually building into your life rhythms that might help you capture this. I love the suggestion, again, from Crouch's book on technology. He says, you know, most of our work is, it's knowledge work. We're so connected that it, it's tied up in our use of tech. And so his suggestion is turning off your phone one hour a day, one day a week, one week a year. Turn it off. 
not just like, oh, I put it on silent and then put it back in my pocket and it's still buzzing, but, but maybe actually turn it off, put it away where you can't see it. One hour a day, maybe during dinner, one day a week, take a Sabbath, one week a year, go on a vacation where you have no cell coverage, you know? Like, do it. Maybe that's a rhythm you want to pursue. Examine your rhythms, okay? Second internal discipline, examine your idols. If you can't turn off, well, then you need to ask, what is demanding your service, your fealty? What are your idols? If you try to stop, you know, cold turkey without thinking about the desires of your heart that lead you to these behaviors, you're just going to stop one thing but, but jump into another. You have to examine your idols. You have to think about what's causing you to work at this pace and then give it up to God. And then the third internal discipline, you have to trust God to be God. You have to, to actively think and, and examine your heart and, and learn to trust God to be God. If you can't sleep at night, because the weight of the world is on your shoulders, it means you're not trusting God to be God. You think you have to be God. You need to trust God to be God. You need to pause and remember he holds the universe together by the word of his power, not you. Okay? So there's the internal disciplines. Examine your rhythm, examine your idols, trust God. Two external disciplines and then we'll be done. Uh, They're kind of cheaters. But number one, love God. Okay? Love God. Structure your rest around worship, okay? Mowing the lawn is wonderful. Football is wonderful. In my life, baseball is wonderful, except for my wife. She hates it, okay? But that's not necessarily worship. The day was set aside for us to look at God. Those things might, might be helpful, ha- make you happy, great. I'm not going to be a Pharisee here. But think about how to structure your rest around worship. Maybe make it the primary focus or or the priority of of whatever time you take, whatever rhythm you build, structure your rest around worship because God is the one that gives life, not those other things. The only way the future will cease to have power over the present is through what one writer called the expulsive power of a new affection. You need a greater love in you to cast that one out. You need to stop and look at God. You need to worship and receive life from him. So love God. Second external discipline, love your neighbor, okay? Love is more than a feeling. It's an act of the will. And for some of us, our Sabbath, we need to, to think about how can I love my neighbor in my, in my Sabbath taking, in my times of rest. Okay, Jesus made it clear. You look at his life, there's room for acts of mercy on the Sabbath. It's good because it's meant as a day where God gives life. And maybe for you, your Sabbath will include acts of mercy, trying to go care for the poor or care for a neighbor or care for your family because God is using you to give life on that day. And that's good. We also can consider how our choices affect our neighbors. Consider how your choices maybe prevent others from rest. So maybe you think about all your online purchasing and you schedule your deliveries on a different day than Sunday. You say, on this day, I'm going to rest and maybe I'll let some drivers rest and not have to come to my house as much. Or maybe I'm going to do a little advanced planning so that I don't have to go to the grocery store, so that the store can be a little slower for the employees there. So maybe, I mean, they still have to show up to work, but maybe it's a little bit more restful because I'm not there. And if enough Christians consider their neighbor and the way they pursue their rest, I think it will have a cumulative effect. We need to love our neighbors through our choices. And then lastly, love others through fellowship and hospitality. Okay? Love God in community. <laughs> it's, it's an opportunity 
Worship, fellowship, hospitality, these things can be restful and give life to your soul. Okay. Let's turn now and worship.